0: Hi, I'm Janet O'Shea. I'm the author of Risk Failure Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training. And I am in conversation with Alex Channon of the Love Fighting Hate Violence Project.
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, as, as Jay says, I'm a sports sociologist. Uh, I'm based in the United Kingdom at the University of Brighton. Um, the Love Fighting Hate Violence Project is um, one of the things that I'm currently working on. Um, I've done a few different research projects on martial arts and it's, uh, it's kind of a, a um, uh, a program that's grown out of that uh, that looks at the difference between fighting and violence and how we can use uh, our, our knowledge about the difference between fighting and violence uh, for socially positive uh, outcomes.
0: Great. So, Alex, um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you in particular, aside from the fact that I'm wearing your Love, Fighting, Hate, Violence t-shirt and some of my book photos, um, is that in some ways I see our projects really as kindred um, you know, ventures. Um, And that I think, you know, you're looking at uh, the sort of sociological differences between fighting and violence and thinking about um, how that mechanism works and ideally how we want it to work. And I think my project looks a little bit more of like why those are different and and why we might want to think about how they're different. But, you know, in so many ways, I think um, the intention is similar, the investment is similar, and then I think the directions we're wanting to go with it is really quite similar. Um so I guess let 's start you know with that, like thinking about what does differentiate martial arts and fight sports from violence um and how are they different because in some ways, of course, a punch to the face is a punch to the face, right, so that would be I think the starting point for a lot of people
1: yeah, absolutely, and that 's the question that uh, that often gets asked whenever I talk about my my work, and i 'm sure you 've heard that you know, that question asked many times with yours um, I think for me, it starts with the recognition that. Um, the, the violence is is not a fixed object so you know the, the times that we've punched each other um, in the training hall and perhaps the times that we've uh, we've punched each other in the arm after a, a funny joke or something you know a punch can be um, in different contexts can cannot uh, can be experienced in ways that are not violent um, in the way that obviously violence so for instance um, sort of subtly moving into someone's space to intimidate them perhaps it doesn't jump off the page as you oh well, wow that's definitely violence that person's been forcefully harmed there um, but it still might be experienced and intended as a form of violence to um, you know to to sort of diminish somebody in a, in a social way so what we, we were thinking about with love fighting hate violence is that um, violence is a social interaction where it's a characteristic of a social interaction rather than something that's a fixed object that's always uh, always going to be the same Um, And when you start to look at it that way, you start to think about, well, what are the characteristics of any given social interaction um, that people might think of as violent that define it as violent? Um, So that's kind of where we started from. And that's that's the sociology behind it. It's it's kind of looking at the uh, the interactional dynamics that exist um, between people. What's the nature of the relationship of people involved um, in a sparring match where they punch each other and then at the end they smile and high five and hug each other? You know, what's the nature of the relationship um, out in a street fight where somebody um, yells obscenities at somebody else and then that person punches them in the face? You know, there's, there's a very different relationship, very different meanings given to those actions. So that's kind of where we started uh, with thinking about what violence looks like.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, I, I yeah, I guess I'm asking you that question because, of course, I, I've gotten that question, you know. And um, the question I often get is like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting that you're, you know, I mean, usually it's, oh, you're writing about martial arts. That's cool, you know, and you're writing about um, the place of um, play and of um, cooperation. Oh, so you're writing about something like Tai Chi, you know. (laughs) Um, And, you know, um, I'm sure Tai Chi has plenty of its own um, martial investments in various ways. But, of course, when you abstract violence so completely, it's much easier to differentiate you know and as soon as i say like oh no no i'm writing about sport fighting you know um a lot of times the response of course is like that's cool but a lot of times it's also something quite different which is oh but i'm not a violent person so i i would never want to do like a muay thai class or a boxing class or whatever um you know and so like for me i kind of come back to this i think my starting point was really looking at um how the same action can mean different things in different contexts like and i think that's really similar you know, to what you're talking about. Um, and I go back to um, Gregory Bateson, the, you know, uh, anthropologist from, I don't know when it was, like the 1950s, I think, looking at animal play and how, you know, for an animal like, um, you know, putting the teeth on the throat could be um, threatening that animal's life. But they also do that when they're just joking around at the dog park. Um, and that's quite extraordinary, really, when you think about it. Um, and, and that also, you know, Beetson's argument is that's the that's sort of the root of communication is differentiating between sign and reference. So I feel like that's super important when we look at play and sport, play, game, sports versus violence. You know what what the action is versus what the action means, both to the person doing that action and the person receiving it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a really important point to make about this um, is that you can't really understand that until you either do it yourself or speak with people who do it and find out what it is that they experience in that, uh, that kind of interaction. You know, what meanings do they derive from it and compare those meanings with the meanings that people derive from interactions which are um, otherwise categorised as violence. So, you know, asking somebody how they felt after being punched in a street altercation versus asking somebody how they felt after being punched in the gym, um, in a sparring session, you know, you, you can't really get this. This is a, it's kind of a paradox to most people. It doesn't really make sense until you look at it empirically, uh, as a scientist or, you know, at least as, a, as an interested party who, who, who takes, um, you know, takes the empirical knowledge that you can get from being involved or from talking to those who've been involved seriously. I think it's very important to do. Um, most of the critiques that I've come up against, um, you know, when, when trying to justify and defend love, fighting, hate, violence, um, that, that suggests it's always always violence and there's no real difference. Essentially, you're damaging each other's bodies and so on. Those kind of criticisms tend to come from people who are not really basing their um, their argument in, in the empirical. Uh, not to say that there's, there's no empirical uh, argument against sort of what we're trying to say here. Uh, but generally speaking, I think it's it's understanding that experience from the point of view of those who do it uh, is quite an eye opener. Um, And I know when you've been writing the book, you've done quite a lot of ethnographic research. You've you've participated and you've, you've, you know, taken your lumps, as it were, um, to get this kind of knowledge.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that for me, you know, um, it it was it does really come from my own experience. And, you know, there's such a long history of the martial arts memoir. Um, And I think what you're talking about has something to do with why why that's a genre, you know, why we have so many of those conventional narratives of, you know, I'm going to go and put myself through the rigors of this training that, that very few other people can understand. And it's remarkably similar, whether it's like, Oh, okay. I'm going to, you know, those martial arts memoirs from like the seventies and eighties, where it was like, I'm going to go off to train, uh, in, in China with the Shaolin monks, or I'm going to go off to train, cha- train in, um, Japan in a highly structured, um, jojo um to then like some of the the mma and brazilian jiu jitsu memoirs that like it, it, it's always about the thing of i'm going to put myself through the rigors and i think it's kind of that thing you're talking about that like you you don't really get it fully until you do it um and i think that's because what it looks like on the outside and what it feels like is, is really so profoundly different and the Mm -hmm. sense of euphoria and, and really goodwill. I think that you can get when, when you're, you know, particularly when it's like your, your own team, when you're training with your, your sparring partners, and you can spar incredibly hard, but the, the trust is so great. Um, that there's, there's such a, sometimes such a good sense of goodwill that gets generated. And again, I think that's part of that, that paradox, you know,
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a point that we've talked about before, isn't it? This, this paradox of, of the, the play fight, um, that you're enjoying doing something that most of the time is, is extremely threatening and stressful. And you, know, you, you derive positive meanings from something that most of the time you would derive very negative uh, experiences from. Um, and I, I think there's, there's something really quite unique about the relationship that you form with people who you train with when you spar against them or when you, you know, if you, if you go and you compete, when you compete against them. Um, and I think one of the, the, the things to sort of look at here is, and this is, this is sort of pertinent to the motivations of people who engage in full contact sport fighting, um, ultimate challenge. You know, you step into the cage, it's, it's a, real, a real test of your abilities. It's a test of your character, perhaps. Um, that test is not possible without the other person genuinely trying to beat you. So in order for the whole activity to make sense and for me to derive these very you know, self-affirming and positive psychological um, outcomes that I'm looking for, I need you to genuinely try to hit me, to try and throw me and choke me and, you know, and do your best to beat me. Without that genuine effort from you trying to do things that might hurt me, the activity is, is meaningless. Um, and, you know, there's several anecdotal points from, from some of my research projects where people have held back from hitting each other, and it's been incredibly frustrating. And actually, that's been perceived you know, as, as an insult and as a negative thing. Um, so, yeah, it's that that mutuality of, of being engaged in a, in a fight in these kind of contexts that clearly the relationship between the people involved is a very different character to the relationships that are involved in um, you know, domestic abuse situations or in um, you know, street altercations or you know, the kind of brawling that you might see around a boxing match between groups of fans, you know, like each other versus the fight between their uh, their fighters in the middle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a really interesting point because, right, in order to achieve that kind of personal best, um, your opponent has to be really seriously making the attempt to de- to defeat you. And I think that's what makes fight sports really different from other kinds of sports. Um because other sports involve risk to the body, for sure. Um, but if your opponent's not seriously trying to beat you, it's, a, it's as if the ski slope ceased to, to exist. You know, yeah. um, like, you know, what, what other sports do through engaging with the environment sometimes, um, we're doing in relation to each other's bodies. So it's, we, we're almost obligated to um, create an obstacle for another person you know, and, and so many, you know, I keep coming back to this thing about games and, um, you know, a game is very often about placing an obstacle. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like why do you need to run around a track, you know, when you could just run straight across it, you know, um, why do the marathon runners run across the entire city when they could just, you know, get on a bus and be there, you know, a fraction of the time, right? Like there's, this is an artificial obstacle. And I think most people understand that when you talk about, Conventional sports like, OK, I'm going to kick the soccer ball across the field. I'm not going to just like grab it with my hands and run across. You know, the more um, a sport becomes like a lifestyle or an extreme sport, the, the more that starts to get questioned. Um, and that might have something to do with the physical risk involved. But then I think it's also because of how the obstacles are placed that a marathon does seem more extreme than a soccer game. It is why would you do it but then when you look at sport fighting and it becomes hey we're creating obstacles for each other and it's another human being's will that is the obstacle it becomes a little bit more like hey that seems maybe like it's kind of aggressive or mm. damaging or that kind of thing
1: yeah definitely and i think again that comes back to that you, you wouldn't really understand that that weird relationship that exists between fighters unless you'd actually been part of that uh, that subculture you know m- perhaps not having done the fight yourself, but at least been around it and talk to people who've done it. It's um it's it's quite a peculiar thing to understand that the nature of that relationship, especially when, you know, you, you'll see a full contact fight and you know the two fighters will leave it all in there as we say. They'll be wearing it at the end, all bruised and bloodied. And the first thing that happens when the bell rings is they hug each other and they might yeah. even kiss each other. You know, it's grown men who've been five, literally five seconds previously been trying to beat each other senseless. Um, embrace and kiss and without seeing that without really thinking about how that could be either we you know these guys are um there must be something seriously wrong with them <laughs> you know or the, the the activity that they're engaged in is um is is different enough in time, in kind um that we need to, to have a serious think about how to analyze that and and to um, understand it from the point of view of those people involved um, and that really i, I get that from, from reading the book that's kind of the, the whole point you know, you've, you've tried to get that that up-close knowledge um, you know, to explain these paradoxes um, and that's something that we've, uh, we've been arguing with love fighting hate violence if we try to understand you know, what is it about a human relationship here that allowed people to batter each other senseless um, but do so in a way that they actually both want to and they both enjoy um, how can we think about that kind of relationship and take that knowledge outside of fight sports to, you know, to think about how we can basically be good to each other more broadly um, what I'm trying to sort of build towards here is, is the principle of consent uh, and how interactions framed by consent, even those that involve risk and you know, brutality and injury and so on, um, are experienced very, very differently to those that don't involve consent uh, when the actions are the same.
0: So one of the things that we keep coming back to is this idea of consent. And I think it's crucially important, you know, as we've discussed, like in Uh, combat sport um, and in daily life, consent is super important and there's also all these ways in which we're constantly really overriding consent in in daily life. Um, What's super interesting, I guess, is that uh, sport fighting is a fairly extreme example um, and that means it could be a difficult one to explore, but it could also be the opposite. It could also be, because it is so extreme, it really exemplifies some of the points we're trying to make about larger questions of how we interact with each
1: other, really. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's, um, you know, when you, when you think about all the different ways in which we interact with each other where, you, you know, we, we do have these sort of minor consent violations where we haven't really checked if someone's okay with us sort of talking about them in a certain way, in a certain context, or, you know, sort of physical contact between um, people who, who perhaps don't have a friendship that, would, that one of them thinks necessitates it and so on. We don't really have to grapple with consent in a really really sort of up close and um uh, and very very clear way most of the time even though perhaps it would be useful to but when it comes to full contact fighting sports where the activity is basically premised on punching each other in the face um you know as hard as you possibly can um, <laughs> you know that consent clearly matters there a great deal because that's not something that most people would be happy with um outside of a very clearly defined uh, environment so I mean, this is something that we've been trying to argue with love fighting hate violence, that people who do these sports, they, they have access to this this um, very clear understanding um, of consent, or at least they should do, you know, if they're, if they're doing it in ways which, uh, which we're familiar with, um, because they have to work out consent before they step into the ring. Uh, and you see there's lots of little rituals around it, you know, the touching of gloves, um, the little referee checking, you know, if you've been over the rules, if you've got any questions, you know, that sort of thing. Lots of these little rituals that are built into the procedure. Um, to, to highlight that the, the, the ring or the cage is a kind of sacred space that when you step into it, people might bow as they step in. It sort of signifies crossing a boundary um, into this arena where we've consented to these things happening. So I think because it is such an extreme and intense form of human interaction, um, which is so bizarre, um, you know, that people would want to have this happen to them. We have to think about consent. And we have to have these parameters in place. You know, for those reasons, we've argued, you know, this is a good setting to start a dialogue about consent. There are other reasons, of course, you know, it's fun um, and it's engaging for young people in in various ways. Um, But because consent is so important in this setting, uh, you know, we've got a real opportunity here to use it as an educational uh, vehicle or or device to, um, you know, to at least start a conversation about, you know, what is consent? What does it look like? How does it feel? Uh, How do you know when someone's consented And, and so on and so on?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I love all of all of the those sort of uh, rituals around sport fighting, um, and the those sort of the, all those codes. Um, I'm always struck by that, like when we talk about, for example, really high levels of, of commercial um, sport fighting, and we say, oh, you know, people sometimes talk about it like, oh, it's it's very it's like a real fight, you know, um, and that's that's funny thinking about like what is real um, in that context, you know. Um, but also, like, particularly when people talk about the UFC and they say, oh, it's 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 like a real fight or it's no holds barred, um, even though, of course, it's like 35 holds barred, really. Um, but also, you know, even something like that where you still have, you know, we still have the touching of gloves and we still have the um, contenders shaking hands. Um, and then the referee, you know, comes out and says, I want a good, clean fight, which I love that because we we've set up a sport where it's like you can do almost anything. But you still have to abide by the rules of the good, clean fight. You know, so that's, that's quite extraordinary. Um, and I, I love how how coded and ritualized that is. And I always find it to be, like, a really beautiful thing just to have that moment of touching gloves, like when I'm sparring. Um, sometimes I wish in combat sport that we took some of these things a little bit further and, and really uh, considered, like, negotiated consent. Um, because what I find, like, it at the very high level, you know, mostly it's not a problem. We all can think of examples where, of course, those boundaries do get crossed and real violence happens, like those, all those examples you've talked about, violence happening in the stands. But, you know, mostly at the high level, it's all right. Where I see it as being an issue is often um, with beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I I found this. I was actually, you know, in a sparring class, and, and my coach, I was sparring with somebody who is uh, very much a beginner. And the coach kind of uh, said to him, you know, you know, you're striking really hard, and I just want you to know that the unwritten rule is, as hard as you strike her, she's going to hit you. Now, do you want to be hit that hard? You know, and this young guy I was like a teenager, was like, oh my god, like uh, no, I don't, <laughs> like um, I don't want you coming back at me with that force. And it was a it was an illustrative moment, but um. Because it's unwritten, it also, there, there are these moments where, where it can go wrong, you know, because they are unwritten rules and they're unspoken rules. So I kind of wonder if there could be more room for negotiated consent in sport fighting, particularly in the context of training, you know, where you don't have a referee and a coach and a manager who's looking out for you.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good point, and this is something that we've tried to address in in our love, fighting, hate, violence um, coaching toolkit, where we've developed, designed a few sort of little games or little activities that um, coaches can use to, to you know to sort of try and teach these these ethical things that we're talking about through martial arts. Um, where some of these games involve actively negotiating with your with your partner, you know, um, is this enough, or you know, are you okay with these techniques, and, and so on, just to get used to practicing particularly for young people, particularly for beginners, practicing, checking, you know, is this person okay with doing this before we, we go ahead. Um, for instance, I mean, I, I was sparring last night, I, I'm training into jitsu and sparring with a, a chap and I had to tap out, uh, before he really had me in a, in a hole because of an injury. Um, and he was very apologetic. Oh, you're right. You're okay. And it, it was, this was my fault. I should have told you beforehand that I had an injury. You know, this is nothing to apologize here, uh, for here. And it, it was on me, you know, I should have been clearer. Um, and you know our our coaches is is very forthright with that you know let each other know if you've got any injuries don't go too hard and so on and so on but you always get that little bit of pride sneaking in and you you perhaps get a little bit complacent and you don't get out ahead of it Um, and i think it's so important for coaches to um you know to take a take a strong sort of leadership position with this Um, and then for people who train with them to actually listen to that you know and, and to to take responsibility for not just making sure that the other person's okay with what you're doing to them, but also to be clear to that person what is and isn't okay for you. Um, so there's, there's lots of different ways that we can try to uh, improve people's understanding of um, not only the importance of consent, but actually how you work out consent and how you have that direct dialogue with the person that you're training with to, to enable you both to enjoy it and to, for it to be productive um, and ultimately safe and ethical and all those other things. So I think it's a, an absolutely, it's a really good point. And I think we, we could only benefit from seeing more of that um, in uh, in training halls and uh, gyms around uh, around the world.
0: Yeah, it's an it's an interesting kind of thing to think about, like what happens when it goes wrong. Um, because, like you, I've tended to focus on all the instances in which it goes right, because most of the time it does, and that's really extraordinary to me. Like how often it really does go right, and you can really be in there kicking and punching people quite hard and have no malice whatsoever. Um, And to me, it's like, that's fascinating. So as well as being really fun, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. so I tend to focus on that. um, But I think it is important to think about what happens when it goes wrong. um, Because I think, you know, one of the things that can happen is like, to most people, what we do looks violent. And it's like, that's aggressive. And, you know, you must be violent people to enjoy it. You must be either sadistic or masochistic or both and not in the kind of, good sex positive kind of way but in the kind of like you're really trying to hurt people way of understanding yeah. sadistic you know or masochistic um and, and or or there's sort of this idea of like well i'd be terrified by that so you must be this incredibly brave person and I, I don't think those things are really you know none of those things are really true but then we get to the point that like okay we have the pleasures of the initiated you know we're, we're in this we understand that it's not violent but then there's the possibility for that for that one person who has too much ego or too many insecurities to then kind of start turning it violent again by being, like, a little more aggressive than other people are comfortable with, by cheating a little bit, by, you know, um, manipulating the circumstances. And then you almost get this hiding in plain sight kind of thing that because we've all accepted it's not violent, then when we see somebody manipulating it, it can be really hard to actually recognize it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And this is something that we've always been um, Christopher Matthews and I've been very clear on with our, our theoretical work that underpins our fighting hate violence um, is that just because we're making the case that martial arts combat sports um, are not inherently violent, that doesn't mean they're never violent Mm -hmm. and understanding what makes something violent. If we're serious about understanding that and, and employing that definition and that understanding, which Hinges on consent, violation, harm, and so on. Um, then, you know, if we're employing employing that definition uh, thoroughly, we should be able to recognise when things become violent in the training hall. You know, when training partners transgress one another's boundaries. When there is, you know, maybe it's too much ego. Maybe somebody doesn't realise that sparring isn't about winning and, and wants to win. Yeah. Um, you know, in in that space, or maybe somebody doesn't like someone and is using their uh, engagement in a martial arts class as a, as a pretext to. Uh, legitimately hurt them you know those sort of things can and do sometimes happen so um, as well as using the ideal case version of martial arts which isn't violence because it's consenting and so on as a way to teach about consent outside of martial arts we can also use this this perspective this program this 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 orientation to try and improve consent within martial arts you know we can get people to be a bit more attentive to that and um, you know foster cultures in gyms in clubs um, where people are always thinking about this um, and, and watching out for it, and recognizing, um, you know, as you put it, when things go wrong, um, you know, that can only be a good thing.
0: Yeah, and and I think, um, you know, as as you're kind of pointing out, like a lot of that has to do with um, practice itself and the the training and the codes that are embedded. But then I think a big part of it is also verbalizing it, you know. And I don't think that's something that is necessarily normalized within a lot of the um, fight gym contexts, mm-hmm. um, like I, or at least I should say that like I've had these really great experiences where I've participated in pretty intense sparring sessions and then we've talked about it afterwards as a group and that's been amazing. Um, and then I've had a lot of experiences where you know we haven't done that and where um, in the interest of kind of getting on with the sparring, which is great. Um, everything becomes very tacit and in some ways I think it's it's super helpful when you can actually verbalize it and and talk to somebody afterwards and say like yeah this was really interesting for me and I learned a lot from this and you know um, we could have gone harder or that was a little too hard and I'm not I don't feel like I'm learning anything from it Um, and then I guess yeah that does kind of come back to this negotiated consent kind of way kind of idea
1: yeah, and I guess there's also something to, to bear in mind that, you know, you and I and, and other academics who study this sort of thing get very excited about ethics and, you know, what martial arts can teach us about all these other big things and, you know, philosophical things in life and so on. Um, but that's not necessarily the, the MO for most people involved. You know, They're not really that bothered. They might sort of respect and, and be thankful that there's a philosophical side to things or whatever, but it's not necessarily at the forefront of their minds and not perhaps the thing they want to spend time in the training hall talking about all of the time um you know yes reflecting on technique and you know maybe you should have done this maybe you should have done that differently um but yeah i think it's worth remembering as much as we want to advocate this and you know let's let's create a a stronger ethical consciousness among martial artists um you know it's not always the easiest thing to to sort of force into regular training sessions Um, and that's that's one of the, the sort of pushbacks that we've had well not necessarily pushbacks but maybe one of the um maybe one of the hurdles with uh, implementing love fighting hate violence in 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 gyms is that um, you know, talking about consent, well, you know, that's great, but I really just want to get fit or I really just want to get ready for my fight. You know, so what, what space is there to implement this kind of thing in a way that doesn't sort of invade and take over or or distract from the things that drew people to combat sports in the first place, which are not necessarily to do with deep ethical reflection. um, Certainly not for the majority of people that I've trained with anyway. Um, it's fair to say
0: yeah yeah absolutely I mean so part of it is like having um like being able to just take responsibility for oneself and for other people and actually just at the moments where things do go wrong to be able to name it quite quickly and also those moments mm-hmm. where it goes right to just be able to name it quickly and be like hey that was a really amazing sparring match like I got this out of it like say it in you know eight seconds and move on because that is a that is a dilemma like with um, martial arts training and I find this in self-defense training too like all the sitting around talking about things like is is really interesting but then one is actually there to train right it's like and and the more the more talking the less like physical technique people are doing the less interaction so yeah it's definitely it's definitely a dilemma
1: with the coaching toolkit that we've, we've produced, to, to um, bring that up again, um, we've sort of been quite, quite, um, tried to be quite forthright about this. You know, coaches who want to teach something that's not specifically um, to do with getting better at martial arts, you do need to address that head on. You, know, you do need to, to have that reflective moment to talk about, okay, what, what can we take from this uh, activity? What can we take from this little sparring round that teaches us about this thing that I want you to learn, this respect or consent or whatever it is? Um, but if we allow that to dominate the session, particularly if we're working with younger people who have, you know, shorter attention spans, particularly if it's younger people who, you know, perhaps are, um, you know, you know have, have particular learning difficulties or something, you know, you, you can't just make it all a theory set session, sit down all the time, get cold and, you know, get bored. You've got to keep it moving. You've got to keep it active. Um, and that, of course, that's the beauty of what makes this. Uh, what makes combat sports such a great educational vehicle to begin with is there's so much fun. So yeah. the key task is, can you teach these kinds of lessons without taking away from the fun? What's the best way to deliver that in a way that's, that's punchy, that's that's sharp, that's gets them reflecting, but doesn't end up um, turning people off and making it boring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I, I think the other, like that kind of leads into, um, something that we've talked about before, which is that the friendships that develop from this training, you know, and I think um, as you're saying that about like when you're in the training hall, when you're in the gym, you don't necessarily have a lot of time to talk about these things. And I was realizing like, Oh, right. Usually when I have had those things of like, let's sit and talk about the sparring session is like, that's with people who I've developed a friendship with because I've trained Mm -hmm. with them a lot. Um, And I think it's a really interesting, you know, I guess it's illustrative of this, of this point, of the ways in which fighting is not violent, is that you can develop these extraordinarily close friendships through the practice of this very hard, um, very uh, combative kind of interaction with other people.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think some of the best friends that I made at university were the the people I trained with. Um, I was at university for a a fair long time and made quite a few good Friends on my course but the people that have stayed with me the longest and you know, been, been my closest friends are the ones who I used to punch and kick um, in our um, kickboxing and, uh, and, and kung fu sessions <laughs> I did that for a while um, yeah, you, you absolutely form really close friendships and the guys that I've trained with now I've known them barely two three weeks some of them the guys who are newer in the gym um, and already, you know, you, I know everything about them, you know, I know where they work and I know what the dog's name is, you know, you, you, because you trust somebody, I think, to, to not hurt you in that environment. You, you, you help somebody to reach their goals and they help you to reach yours in, in a way that's um, this really quite unique form of interaction. Um, you know, and obviously, as I say, trust, you know, it's, it's essential to that, to that relationship. Uh, yeah, you, you build fantastic friendships. And again, it's it's something that I mentioned earlier, the the idea of the the nature of the relationship that exists between the people involved is what helps us to differentiate between violent interactions and non-violent interactions. And if we look at the nature of the relationship involved in your typical, um, you know, when things are going right, your typical club, uh, typical martial arts training centre, whatever, um, those relationships are usually um, really good. Um, And certainly that that helps us to understand the difference between um, fighting and violence.
0: Yeah, um and I think there's something really I mean, I I used to refer to this as like unlikely friendships and then I kind of realized that was even a weird way of like positioning like I have my normal world friends and then I have my martial arts friends and somehow that they're different. Um which they're not. There's just a kind of different um it, like it the intensity produces a different kind of relationship. Um but I think I was calling them unlikely friendships because these are people I've um met through martial arts and I only know them because of martial arts, and so they come from kind of different walks of life sometimes than you know my ordinary world friends. Um, and I was really, you know, I, I really noticed this when I first started training um, in in uh, contact martial arts, like in jiu uh, jitsu sparring. And I was training at UCLA, and it was like I was, you know, an adult with a regular job and a kid and, you know, that kind of life. And these were all like, you know, 20-year-old science students. Um, And these are not people who I would have necessarily become friends with, not out of any desire not to be friends with them, but just it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have had the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there we were, kicking and punching each other and grappling with each other. And um, we developed these really extraordinary kinds of connections, Um, which I think does really say something about, the practice about the way in which these kinds of experiences can really draw people together.
1: Yeah. It, it's, it's something that um, is said about a lot of sports, you know, it brings people together and in a kind of a cliched kind of way. Um, but again, it's yeah. when you, when you step into it and you, you actually do it, you, you realize that there's a real profound truth about that, you know, and that some of the people that you've trained with and you've shared that experience with, and you've trusted not to harm you in a situation which, you know, they could harm you. Um, and you've built that kind of trusting relationship with them. That's, it's quite unique. I, I dare say, it makes you it, it bonds you with people in a way that you can't get with your, you know, quote unquote, normal friends. Um, you know, depending on how close you are with, with some of those or whatever. But it's, and I, I'd say the same. You know, the the karate gym that I was training at for a couple of years recently, um, you know, I was the youngest there by far. You know, I'm in my thirties, and all these guys are much older than me. Um, totally different walks of life, totally different life experiences, political outlooks, all the rest of it. Um, and I've become really good friends with them. You know, you, you sort of have that, that connection with somebody um, that you, you know, it's, it's hard to really describe it to somebody who's, who's not done uh, this kind of thing and hasn't um, trusted someone to punch them appropriately. It yeah. <laughs> sounds so weird you would say it, right? Um, but, yeah, you, you do build great friendships. Um, and I, I know something that we, we'd had um, we'd planned to talk about, which I think probably fits into this quite well, um, is the, the mixed sex training um, aspect, um, particularly the friendships that form uh, perhaps between men and women um, you know, in a, in a sporting context where most sports that we do um, in, in the UK and the US, I think, tend to be done in, in sex-segregated environments, certainly team sports do. Um, you don't normally train alongside um, men if you're, if you're a woman or women if you're a man, whereas the vast majority of martial arts teams, and I've, I've struggled to think of any that I've ever seen that are formally sex-segregated, Certainly, there are women's only classes and women's only gyms, but they, they tend to be tagged onto gyms where there are, you know, general mixed environments as well. And that makes it quite a unique um, sort of a setting.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that is something that is really amazing about martial arts training, particularly like where it is at this moment in time. Um, and I think. Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot because I love the writing that you've done and some of the other sports writers have done about the need for um, mixed sex, mixed gender training in sports. And there's all these ways in which sex segregation really doesn't serve to help anyone that much because there's all those things we know about how women's sports are underfunded. Um, but then also, it kind of continues to contribute to this societal idea that women just aren't as good at sports, and, and of course. If men are not playing sports with women, they really never have that idea challenged. Whereas in these kind of newer so-called alternative sports like sport fighting, I mean martial arts aren't new in that sense, and women in martial arts is not a new thing. But it, it's kind of these sort of fight sports as sports are relatively you know newer alternative. Um, I see this in rock climbing a lot too, that men and women train alongside each other, and you know I think it is really quite good for society to see that happening. And I think it's quite good for men, actually, to see women um, interacting with them in ways that are competitive and are um, physical and aggressive without it being a question of, like, if you lose, your, your ego has been destroyed, you know? And I think that's something you see with beginners a lot, and it's amazing how quickly that gets um, trained out of a person, actually. So it's like this really nice metaphor for how, like, society could actually change.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And as, as you know, I've, I've written a, a little bit about this it's my previous research interests before turning to the question of violence in martial arts was the, you know, the relationship that exists between men and women when they, when they train together. And um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the data that exists um, from my research, from from various others who've done similar projects and in other sports as well, um, there is that general hesitance, uh, particularly among younger and inexperienced men, to uh, to spar with women. Usually, most of the guys that I interviewed, um, that comes to an end fairly quickly, uh, usually through uh, having been, been beaten um, and, and feeling a woman's strength, which, as you say, when we don't have opportunities for sex-integrated sports, people simply can't understand what it's like. People can't, uh, can't challenge the general um, received wisdom that women are Weak, frail uh, and incompetent in in athletic um, environments and so on. You know, those kind of lessons get get beaten out of you quite quickly when someone kicks you in the head, you know. Um, And, of course, this isn't to say that, you know, we we should have set integration at all levels in in combat sports, you know, men should fight women in the cage in the UFC and so on. I think, you know, that's a different debate um, when it comes to the training environments and the kinds of things that people who are not necessarily competing at the highest level can learn through um, simply sharing the same space, feeling each other's strength, uh, and coming to respect each other as athletes. Um, again, there's, there's some, some great uh, research going on now, um, continuing this sort of line of, of reasoning, looking at the, the relationships that form um, between men and women um, in ways that, uh, that engender respect, um, partly by looking at men's changing attitudes towards women in these environments, but also um, women's um, self respect and, and self esteem. You know, when you've, when you've experienced fighting against uh, a man, um, you know that's that's quite different to experiencing fighting against a woman in a society which teaches women um, that they are powerless against male violence so I think there's there's a lot of things that we can take from uh, from looking at the uh, the practice of, of sex integrated training not always great not doesn't always work out wonderfully um, but there's lots of things that can be um, you know considered quite positive things uh, I think from that environment
0: yeah for sure and it's it's really interesting like even that um You know, some of the the women-only classes or, like, the women's open mat, like, there are gyms where it's like, oh, we're going to have a women's class because the women are timid and hesitant and need to step into their power and, you know, um, and and this idea that somehow fighting women is going to feel less intimidating, which... I'm not sure it always does necessarily, Um, but there's an idea that, oh, it would feel less intimidating. And so we'll have a women's class for that. But then, of course, there's also the the women's open mat or the women's only class for the women who are competitors. And I'm always struck by that, like, as, you know, an amateur that, like, you know, you go to these some gyms and and there's almost this idea of the women's class is like almost this like beginner thing. But then Mm -hmm. there are these other ones where it's like, no, that actually going to that women's open mat sounds terrifying to me because these are women who are like high level athletes um who i would you know and i'm sure they'd be perfectly respectful but it would be like that would be you know i'd I'd really get my ass kicked quite royally in that (laughs) in that sort of context um so it's really wonderful how a lot of these things um transform our gender assumptions um i think in in talking about mixed sex mixed gender training i think it is also important to recognize um how hard that those earlier generations of women had to fight, um, kind of pun intended to be included in those spaces. Um, and the ways in which women were really ignored, invisibilized, um, you know, put through their paces in a much harder way than some of their male colleagues. Um, and I think, you know, because of that, I still do value some of the, um, some of the women's spaces within martial arts, um, even as I recognize that, like, ideally, we want to be moving toward completely integrated training. Just because yeah. there's a history there, you know, and I think it's important to acknowledge that history.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, there's obviously, um, there's a lot written about this as well, actually. I think about the, the history of women's fight in sports is something that, that um, social historians have been um, turning to recently. Uh, some fantastic stuff going on there. Um, I think to add to that I think that the there's a a value for female only spaces in in martial arts gyms but also in in gyms more broadly um, in the sense that some women really don't want to be around men uh, when they're exercising and that might be um, simply a sort of personal preference it might be because of being traumatized before in um, in the past and certainly there's um, there are, there are programs for women who, who are survivors of, um, of abuse or violence, you know, committed against them by men, who, you know, for whom training alongside men in activities which approximate violence is is not likely to be, um, you know, a particularly positive experience. And um, it's a good colleague of uh, my mine, good friend and colleague uh, Kathy Vanning at uh, Brock University, who's uh, done some fantastic work with the Shape Your Life program, uh, which is a, a boxing-based uh, sort of trauma-informed. Um, yeah, uh, program for women who who have come through these kind of environments, and it is it is uh, women only. Um, and a lot of people who come to these these sort of settings, they, they do need a, a very specific environment. Um, you know, for, so for for those kinds of women, as well as those who might be perhaps a little bit hesitant at, at first to be, um, you know, training alongside men in full contact fighting activities. I think it, it's a positive thing that these exist. Um, perhaps for some people, they serve as a gateway into integrated training. For others, that might be all they get, and um, I mean, I've kind of gone around in circles in my own head with this. You know, do I, do I think these are good? Do I think these are perhaps uh, holding people back and so on? Um, ultimately, I think taking part in sport is a good thing and people can can accrue various different sort of psychological, social benefits from doing it, uh, as well as the health and fitness stuff. Um, and whatever helps people to be involved, I think, is 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 positive, um, provided it's done in a way that's that's conducive to, um, you know, those kind of outcomes and it's respectful and, and so on and so on. So, yeah, I do think there's as much as I usually advocate integrated training for the good it can do. um, I I do think that there are various reasons to also support the existence of separate spaces.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think there is also I mean, it's like when we talk about um, separate spaces along the lines of any identity, um, you know, whether it's gender or race or um, religion or socioeconomic status any anything like that. I mean, there's a way in which we, we can urge inclusivity because we want exchange and dialogue. And then there's also sometimes a need for specific spaces just so people don't have to start the conversation from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that I've noticed with like the women's martial arts, um, uh, trainings that i've been involved with here is that it's it's not kind of um these are often high level practitioners so it's not so much like here's how to integrate you into this um or here's how to do this practice if you have um cultural or religious reasons why you're not practicing around men but instead it's like here's a community for you because you may well be the only woman in your gym or you may be you know, there may be 15 women now at the Karate dojo where you train, but you might've been the first and you might've been the one who had to fight for it. So here, come to this space where everybody has had this experience and we can, you know, um, experience and and remember that together and then we can build our training in that sort of setting. And so I think that's very comparable in some ways to the other kinds of um, closed spaces that we talk about, that it's not, the idea isn't to have the closed space and have it be that way permanently. It's to kind of create arenas in which people have the commonality of experience. So then we can go out and like, continue to have these conversations with people who have different life experiences with us and train with people who have different life experiences.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all of that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what that kind of comes back to is sort of, it really does kind of come full circle to this point about, um, you know, finding the nonviolence in, combative sport and, and really opening up, I think, to what nonviolence really means, because I think it doesn't just mean the absence of violence. You know, it's like, it, these are like tactical practices that have to do with things like consent and parameters and engagement and um, codes of respect and ethics. Um, so it kind of like it, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a simple distinction, you know, but it's one in which I think it kind of calls out for continued exploration.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the the recognition that most of our uh, martial arts practices, which you know go according to plan, as we've as we've mentioned, um, are uh, not violence because they don't involve um, violations um, of what people have consented to. Um, you know, on the on the one hand, that is non-violence, but then you know we can use that, that experience, that knowledge that we can gain through that experience um, as a way to generate anti-violence uh, as a as a mindset or as a you know perhaps as an explicit sort of call to action. Um, and I remember from from reading the book, uh, your book, that you you've sort of connected this this phenomenon with um, sort of broader, um, you know, sort of political issues and, and the, the the changing political climate as it as it is um, over the last sort of five six years or so towards you know less dialogue, you know, people shouting at each other from opposing camps rather than meaningful exchange and so on. Um, so yeah, I was hoping that we'd get a chance to talk about that um, in, in this podcast. You know, this connection between Something that in Love, Fighting, Hate, Violence, we've only really looked at it on the micro level and the sort of pedagogical coaching level. Um, but there's a broader level here, there's a broader sort of societal, uh, political level. Um, and I wanted to you say a bit more about sort of where your, um, where your project with the book is, is sort of pointing towards in terms of how we can leverage that knowledge about non-violence into something that's progressive, anti-violent and so on.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I keep coming back to this thing of like sport fighting as a metaphor. And, um, you know, of course on one level, it's not a metaphor. It's a real thing that people do. Um, and that is very immediate in its um, fact. But I think that's one of the things that makes it work in a really interesting way as a metaphor is to think about like, you know, if we can figure out how to be respectful on the mat when we're punching each other in the face why can't we figure out how to be respectful or having a political conversation? Um, And if we can figure out how to do things like sparring, and I think sparring is particularly interesting, sparring as opposed to like competition fighting, because that idea that you can compete really hard in the moment, but not be meaning to win and not be invested in winning is super interesting to think about politically that, because democracy sort of hinges on that idea that you you fight as hard as you can in the moment for your agenda, for your purposes. Um, You you fight, in a sense, to to win, but then you recognize the outcome may or may not be exactly what you want, and you proceed accordingly to still build something that is useful, whether or not you've won as a candidate or whether your agenda wins. Um, And that whole idea of, like, competition and cooperation like on the one hand when I talk about it in relation to sparring it's it's very micro and it's kind of idealized but it's also really central to the workings of democracy like if you don't have both competition and cooperation you kind of don't really have democracy so I think that's a value that we really need to practice in our daily lives so that we can continue to val- value it in the public sphere um, and right now I'm kind of worried because we're not really valuing it in the public sphere
1: yeah i can see that very clearly i mean in the uk we've got a very similar sort of polarization around um you know the whole brexit issue uh, as well as wider debates that are connected to that as, as you guys have in the us around you know the sort of the far right and, and uh, trumpian politics and you know all the scandals that are erupting around different political parties and so on um, i think you know your point there about you know you have to respect uh, outcomes you know in order to preserve democracy and you know if you can't um lose the sparring match respectfully and and, you know learn from it and progress on from that point if you have to win the sparring match then it ceases to be sensible as as sparring and the point of training breaks down because then you're suddenly in a fight for your life against someone who you know you could be working with to to collectively improve you know the the whole um you know both of your abilities and you know have a good time hopefully um you know equally and you know if you're fighting your corner so hard that you forget that the um you know, the, the, uh, the nature of the match as it were I'm trying to stretch this metaphor a little bit but the nature of the match that enables you to fight is, is that democracy and, and part of that democracy is being able to um, agree to disagree and, and being able to accept that okay you, you lost this time but if you push through and make it a win by breaking the rules then you won't be able to fight in the future It'll be, you know, you'll, you'll have replaced this, this condition of um, everybody sharing power with something far worse um, than, than simply losing the occasional sparring match
0: yeah, exactly. And that like kind of goes back to the the game theories of, you know, um a game without rules um, you know, ceases to be a game anymore. Um it when you break the rules, you're not you're not just um doing something kind of wrong, you're actually changing the game itself. And I think we see that so clearly in politics when it's like, no, it didn't work the way we wanted it to, so we're going to change the rules. I mean, that's quite frightening if the the rules of what you're changing or the game, quote, unquote, that you're changing is democracy. Um, So I think, um, you know, I kind of am realizing we're running out of time. So I guess, you know, to kind of wrap this up, I mean, I think the important thing here that that we're coming back to is like these ideas about understanding fighting versus violence, thinking about how fighting can be not just not violent, but anti-violent is recognizing that like games and sports Aren't just these trivial things? Like they, these are spaces where re, we rehearse how we want to live as individuals and as societies. Um, and I think that's why I value so much projects like Love, Fighting, Hate, Violence.
1: Yeah, there's a, a point that um, has been made repeatedly by my colleagues in the sociology of sport, and I'm sure they'll be absolutely thrilled uh, to hear you say that if they listen to this podcast that uh, sports matter you know and, and what yeah. we do is absolutely what we do in sport is a reflection of what we want to do you know we, we engage in these voluntarily most of the time um, we place a great deal of cultural emphasis on them we, we prize sports we, we see them as exemplars of, of of ourselves at our best you know we take the Olympic motto at face value um, you know sitius altius fortius right it's the best that humanity has to offer the best reflection of what we are so the way we do sports I think tells us a great deal about what we um, idealize uh, in our societies and if we can use that use that space productively um, to not just reflect something that we would like to to see but actually to try to bring that about deliberately try to bring that about and um, then i think that can only be a good thing
0: yes indeed um the the micro level matters it matters a lot um so yes this uh, has been a really great conversation um Thank you very much for spending this time talking with me. Once again, I'm talking to Alex Channon of the Love Fighting Hate Violence Project. And I'm Janet O'Shea, author of Risk Failure Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training. Thank you, Alex.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Janet. It was a really, really stimulating chat. Thank you very much.